Chapter 2. Modern Monies. Quote, Who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows it? Close quotes. Obi, one Kenobi, a new hope, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Control of the money supply has often been seen as a crucial factor of totalitarianism. All the great despots controlled their own money printers. It's not really a fascist or a communist thing, if there's even a difference between the two of them. It's just an authoritarian one. In Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx listed several definitions of how one could spot a communist society in the West. The fifth point Marx lists intrigues me. Quote, Centralisation of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Close quotes. Whether we like it or not, the democratic West has fallen, at least in one area, to a very suspect, centralised and authoritarian mode of capitalism. So, if you remember the last episode, we got to about Renaissance Europe and then skipped towards early modern and more modern Europe. So, like a Quentin Tarantino film, we're going to go back in the timeline and start with perhaps the most significant economic event of the second millennia in Europe. This was the breaking of feudalism. A pandemic, the bubonic plague, killed sometimes up to half the population of some communities. You know, a pandemic where a killer disease kills healthy people rather than just killing off the weakest. This pandemic led to a complete sea change in the economic makeup of society. The sudden drop in population meant that less food was rapidly less needed, as there were fewer mouths to feed. Yet the farms and the animals weren't really affected, so food became far cheaper. With far more food, people didn't need to rely on their lords to provide for them. The ownership of serfs became less and less over time, as freedoms for the ordinary person increased, resulting, not a huge amount of time later, in the end of feudalism. With cheaper food and lots of dead people, there was also suddenly more room to live in. Rents extracted by the lord of the manor became cheaper and cheaper as there were less people around. It was simply supply and demand, and it wasn't long before rent prices dropped to much more affordable levels. It also meant the value of labour relative to other areas of money transfers increased. Again, simply supply and demand. Normal Europeans now saw increasing excess of capital in their pockets with less to pay for what they needed, and less people, meaning the relative value of their labour and time, increased. It led to ordinary people 
being able to spend time and money on more productive and more interesting things, rather than the entire economy revolving around rent extraction from serfs. Trade, art, literature, science, exploration and technology all flourished after the Black Death. By the middle of the 1450s, these advances in European standards of living would all come to a head with the slow printing press revolution enabling these newly freed people to get and spread information far quicker and more reliably than ever before. Yet, it wasn't in England, but in Florence, where Europe first returned to a Roman standard of living. We talked about this in the last episode, how the Renaissance was as much Europe coming out of a depression than anything else. Arguably the reason was that Florence became the first in Europe since the Romans to truly mint gold metal coins. And it gave Europe a reserve currency allowing easier trade all over the continent and beyond. Florence flourished, and so did Europe. Britain, meanwhile, started its modern monetary adventures by adopting the modern gold standard in 1717, under Sir Isaac Newton, who was the warden of the Royal Mint. Britain had long been on the silver standard, but as Europe got richer and richer, and more gold came into the continent, it started a demonetization of silver across the world. This was finally cemented by Germany winning the 1871 Franco-Prussian War, and demanding the gold in tribute. Germany used this gold to switch away from the silver standard and towards the gold standard. The polities that didn't switch to gold and stayed on silver were quickly left behind. In this new European gold standard, all currencies were fixed to a certain amount of gold, e.g. one British pound was worth 7.3 grams of gold, while the French franc was worth 0.29 grams of gold. The soundness of money also allowed good interest rates on saved capital. The soundness of money meant there began to be much capital accumulation, and a far freer society without much government interference in life. The first pangs of the idea of the sovereign citizen. Wealth led to freedom, which led to happiness. Happiness led to confidence, and confidence leads back to a good economy. Yet, as we saw in the previous chapter, the imposition of this new monetary standard ended with the First World War. The First World War was a key turning point in Western society. Jacques Barzun identified 1914 as perhaps the key turning point in Western civilization. He argues the war and the subsequent movement towards government money after the gold exchange was stopped resulted in a great switch between liberalism and liberality. Liberalism 
argues for the removal of the state from individuals, while liberality means the government allows and permits people's indulgences in society and to protect them from consequence. While another French historian, Eli Halavey, defined the current period of history as the era of tyrannies, where the major powers have economically and intellectually nationalised the country. The classical liberal concept of a smaller government is only possible in a country of sound money, when the money means just as much to you as it does to the government. Once the government has its hands on the levers of the money printer, money is just another political tool to be used. Sound money enforces honesty and transparency on government, while soft fiat money allows governments to buy allegiance and to spend on popular, but maybe are not necessarily good, projects. Just because the government is democratic doesn't mean it's any better than an authoritarian regime, in this instance at least. In some ways, democracies face even more pressure to print due to elections. All the major tyrants of the world operated their own money printer, from Hitler to Lenin, Stalin, Mao and Mussolini. Money makes the world go round, and today, governments print the money. This government money becomes pretty awful after only a short period of time. If the government, or government agencies, are the only ones that can provide for the arts, art then becomes politicised. If academic works can only survive from government grants, then it is the government they have to satisfy. I know quite a lot of academics in Britain who studied the European Union. All of them got grants from the European Union. They were all, coincidentally or not, huge fans of staying in the European Union and were the most ardent Remainers. With government money, individual enterprise is washed away as what people can do with their own money becomes less and less, while their money in society also reduces in importance. Life becomes more and more about the greasy government pole of fitting in and not raising your voice. But how did you quite get into this situation? Well, the monetary order was going far wrong before 1914 sent the world's major economies off the gold standard. Leaving the gold standard was just the death knell. Modern monetary problems really start with the slow globalisation of the world. I don't mean international trade, but the slow merging of political, economic and financial interests across the globe. The best and perhaps the first example of globalisation was the British East India Company. 19th century monetary historian Alexander Del Mar is perhaps the best known historian to lay out the evidence for bankers and financiers taking over some of the most powerful global corporations, 
for their own profit at the expense of the ordinary person. In the 17th century, the British East India Company wanted permission to export British silver to India. To do this, they had to ask the crown. Silver was the currency of the day, and it was a crime to take it out of the country without permission. Silver was the basis of the wealth of the country, so it was clear that taking it out of the country would impoverish the ordinary people from where the silver was being taken. In 1662, a charter was granted by Charles II, which gave the East India Company permission to trade silver with India. This charter also permanently established the East India Company. So why was this so bad? Well, it gave bankers and financiers huge leverage in society. By being able to take silver out of Britain and sell it to India. British silver was the wealth of the country. But the reason, and the only reason, the East India Company wanted to take it out of Britain and sell it to India was that India was generally a poorer society than Britain. Silver's purchasing power was higher in India, meaning you could sell British silver at higher prices in India. In what was almost nothing different from Jesus in the temples all those years ago, the East India Company began on what was basically money changing. You could get twice the price of British silver for Indian gold. So change your silver for Indian gold, and while you're at it, load up the sailing ship you use to take the silver with you, and bring spices and gold back to Britain. Just by taking money out of Britain, you've made a huge profit. But this only benefited the East India Company's shares, and not the wealth of Britain, or of course India for that matter. What this process started was the long trend over centuries of bankers and financiers starting to take control of monetary policy areas. In 1666, the bankers got the right to export unlimited amounts of silver to India under the term free coinage. Delmar argues there was bribery of the highest officials in the land, including Charles II, for this free coinage to be allowed. This free coinage worked for the benefit of the bankers and not society. Delmar originates all banking collapses and disasters to this original decision, as banks were now granted a form of sovereignty over coinage and were able to take control of the money flows in and out of the country at will. The 1666 Act, Delmar wrote, was so stupid or criminal as to pass the East India Company's bill in 1666 and permit the country to be drained of its measure of value by a band of adventurers. Close quotes. Despite causing much harm to the general person's wealth, 
nobody did anything about this new economic system, and the act was certainly not repealed. The profits of the then-private Bank of England and the East India Company were far too great for anybody wealthy to be brave enough to think of something like trying to ban it. This free coinage had an impact not just in Britain's informal empire, but also its formal one. In colonial America, this money trading caused a huge impact in the burgeoning colonies, and an issue we're still dealing with today. When the colonists went over to America, they were of course under British jurisdiction, and the jurisdiction of the Bank of England which was a private corporation. And it was this private monetary system the colonists inherited that in part led to the American Revolution. The colonists needed and wanted a monetary system that encouraged the imports of metals from England, as there had not been any found yet in North America, compared to the resplendent South. So, as we saw, some colonies chose a tobacco standard. Yet it was clear to all that the monetary policy of the 13 colonies was still imperfect, as free coinage allowed not only for the plunder of British silver for Indian gold, but also the plunder of America's monetary metals too. The American recession of 1750 was because of this contracting supply of monetary metals, as the precious metals were constantly being sent back to the bankers of England. Therefore, the colonists decided on a new strategy, paper money. Massachusetts, in 1690, was the first to issue its own paper money, and was perhaps the first step on the break with the crown that culminated in 1776. This paper money could have been the solution to all the colonists' problems. Even by this point, paper was easy enough to make, and what it lacked in soundness, it made up for in its independence from the British-controlled banks. The Brits, of course, knew this, and they knew what the Americans were up to. And so, the British found ways to stop and spite the colonists and their paper money. The 1765 Stamp Act was the result. The Act forced a tax upon all printed materials in the colonies. From newspapers to playing cards, and most crucially of all, paper money. The tax for this Stamp Act had to be paid in British currency which was monetary metals, and could not be paid in American paper notes. The extremely negative reaction to the Stamp Act, we are told in history books, which is largely about the no taxation without representation. And to some extent, this was true. But it was also tied up in the colonists wanting to be able to issue their own paper money. The Stamp Act is perhaps the worst ever policy blunder made, as it directly led to the later revolution. 
the taxes demanded to be paid for the Stamp Act, which could not be paid in American notes, but only in monetary metals, caused ever more drainage of the American public finances. To further emphasise how silly this tax was, not only did it tax the paper money, but it also taxed any printed piece of paper, which meant newspapers began to be taxed too, causing the price of newspapers to go up. It was almost an act designed to stoke up media hostility. The importance of money in America is no surprise. More than a political idea, America was originally an economic idea, a country built on trade. The foundational holiday in America is Thanksgiving, a holiday that memorialises trade. The stories of cowboys and Indians are all about trade. The stories of the gold rushes is all about money. The expansion of the West, the economic booms and busts, and the resultant depressions. The slave trade, of course. The Mississippi paddle steam traders. And, much more, I could go on about, all show how much American life is based upon commerce and trade. Following victory in the revolution, America could settle on a new monetary standard. This monetary standard was the brainchild of one of the greatest ever Americans, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin became the father of American paper money. In his earlier adulthood, he became an apprentice to a printer and developed a great interest in the ideas of the technology of printing. Despite any real lack of proper education, he is the icon of the American Enlightenment and the most renowned founding father. In 1729, Franklin had published a modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of a paper currency, in which he laid out his ideas for a paper money. American colonies attempted to follow Franklin's plan. Instead of using monetary metals, American colonies wanted to follow Franklin's plan. Instead of using monetary metals that were now largely controlled by British banking corporations. Colonial authorities in London didn't want to be paid in this paper money. And so, in 1751, they banned the use of paper currencies in New England. And then, in 1764, extended the ban across the colonies. In response, Franklin petitioned Parliament in 1766 to allow paper money to be printed. Franklin later wrote a letter to a friend regarding the nature of the Stamp Act, arguing it was an impingement on American life itself. When America became independent, much of Franklin's work could be put into practice. The American Revolutionary War was the first to be fought and funded by paper money. This paper money was legally backed by gold and silver, but you would have been lucky to actually be able to trade any of the paper money for the metals. Over the course of the war, 
This new American currency, called the dollar, lost 25% of its purchasing power within just a few years. And by 1781, the colonies started to issue their own paper money, further causing the decline of the dollar. In the early republic, the money supply became a very important part. In Article 1, Section 10 of the US Constitution, it states, quote, No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. Close quotes. This is despite Section 8 also saying that only the federal government has the sole power to regulate the value of money. The US eventually pegged the US dollar to the same exchange rate as the Spanish silver dollar. Monetary policy declined in importance through parts of the 19th century in both Britain and America, as both countries found huge gold deposits, while trade also increased as the American continental landmass was expanded across. Wave after wave of technological innovation in Britain and then America and Germany solved many potential economic problems that might have resulted from this slightly weak currency. The soundness of money during the 19th century led to the reputation of the Bank of England being the safest place in the world, no doubt an idea encouraged by British propaganda. The importance of central banks, however, in the security of their bank deposits proved just how gold wasn't perfect. It was heavy and difficult to move, leading to a huge centralisation of gold deposits in bank vaults. This meant gold, and therefore wealth, became more and more centralised. The old gold standard itself did not prevent all government restrictions on money printing. The printing press was still open for abuse by governments, and they managed, at the first sign of trouble with the First World War, to change the whole economic system. As the war proved a catalyst for reform, removing the link between gold and paper notes. As to remove gold from private supply, this was done by the man who invited fascism into the United States. Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102, forbidding gold hoarding and forcing people to sell their own gold to the Federal Reserve at far below its market value. Once enough gold was cleared from private hands in the country, the move towards demonetizing gold truly began. The limit on gold ownership was repealed only in 1974, and only once the United States had removed the link from the dollar to gold. Money hasn't always been controlled by the government in this way. This is very much a 20th century idea. The 20th century was all about the battle of political systems, and as the 20th century morphs into the 21st, the difference between these political models gets smaller and smaller. If 
you look at the monetary policies of countries all around the world, the first thing you'll notice is a lack of diversity. All governments use money by decree. Whether it's liberal democracies, communist dictatorships, or repressive Muslim theocracies. The loss of sound money during the First World War led H.G. Wells to say, quote, War arrested and ultimately broke up this unpremeditated monetary cosmopolitanism. At the close of the war, the practical monetary solidarity of the world has disappeared and the overprinting of paper money continued. Close quotes. The war crushed the balance between the economy and monetary order. It wasn't long before this new fiat system was being used for ill. Lenin and then Stalin, Hitler and Mussolini used the power of the money printer to great effect to manipulate and control their own peoples. Governments controlled the economy through its control over money, rendering individual citizens helpless in the face of the government's monopoly over both force and money. If you have in society no force and no real money, what have you got left? Economic problems during and after the First World War were all monetary problems. But it was easy to whip up hatred against scapegoats, who could be blamed for the economic problems. Hatred was whipped up against the aristocrats in Russia, the Armenians in Turkey, and Jews in Germany. The government money in Britain was only truly formalised in 1960, when, like Alexander's, the monarch's head was regularly placed on paper money indicating truly whose money it now was. For some on both the political left and the political right, government control allowed the poor to catch up to the middle class and the wealthiest, as welfare was now easier to issue and fund, whilst huge wealth could also be contained. Yet, as in most situations, when governments do try and help, it actually causes waste and inefficiencies to proliferate, ending up with both rich and poor being worse off. Yet, despite all the problems in the United States, its economic advances over the centuries caused it to sail through much of this era of change in good shape. The Wild West of the American continent was being tamed at a rate many could not imagine, as even California, on the very furthest edge of the continent, became an economic powerhouse over the course of just a few decades. Much of this newfound wealth found its way back to the capital reserve of the country, New York. The island of Manhattan, built on a solid bed of schist, gave a kind of metaphorical stability to this new growth, as it allowed huge skyscrapers and deep tunnels to be built. 
As Manhattan went up, it symbolised its growing dominance over London, as the previous world's capital reserve began to slide. America, built on commerce and trade, was obsessed with money. Over the 19th century, the United States found itself unable to produce a monetary system to support all though. It had a national bank twice during this period, whilst the Supreme Court also deregulated currencies, allowing state banks to print their own notes. This system was not great, and there was something of a cash crunch at times, so many simply resorted to barter. But such was the wealth that it didn't really matter for some. But others did feel shortchanged by this system, as the American bankers milked money from them. In the old world, European bankers, think Mr Banks and Mary Poppins, grew a reputation for sophistication, just as Americans began to hate their bankers ever more. You simply need to look at Monopoly, the game, which was designed to show the inherent flaw in American capitalism. During the middle of the 19th century in the US, state and private banks began to issue their own money. This system actually kind of worked, and the system continued to work until the middle of the 19th century, as the American Civil War hit. To fund the war, Lincoln brought the first Legal Tender Act into Congress to give him the ability to print $150 million. This precipitated America's experiment with free banking ending in 1863, with the result a national currency being introduced controlled by the government and federally chartered banks. But with the government in need to pay huge sums for the American Civil War, the government abused its position and began to print its way out of trouble. These new notes that had been printed in the United States were called greenbacks, and they weren't worth what they were said to be worth. Yet the government promised to pay back what they would be worth at a later unspecified date. Essentially, they were paper government bonds, on the promise that the Union would win the war. It took 15 years for the reunited United States to build up enough gold reserves to settle these debts, and to give it the ability to rebuy the purchasing power of the dollar. The Union's problems of money was nothing compared to the Confederacy's, where the billions of dollars issued by the Confederacy were made simply worthless overnight upon their defeat. Much of the South collapsed into poverty, and with slavery now gone as the backbone of their economy, the South struggled to readapt into a modern, prosperous, industrialising economy. The populist movement of the late 19th century in America was a reaction to the perceived trap the South had been placed into. With the decimation of their main industry, slavery, and now no new industry, at the same time as all their monetary wealth was made worthless. 
the inability to change the monetary order in the South and the helplessness of the banking system resulted in many in the South blaming monetary issues on something else. Namely, that Southerners were now competing for jobs with the newly freed slaves on an open market, vastly reducing labour's value in the South. Many poor, especially black people, left for the northern cities. But for those who remained, segregation was the result, rather than a new monetary and economic deal for the South. Once again, monetary problems were based on scapegoats rather than the actual problems. It was divide and rule in action. Populist William Jennings Bryan campaigned again and again on introducing both a gold and silver standard. He lost two presidential elections in 1896 and 1900. This era of American politics was satirised in Frank L. Baum's A Wizard of Oz, where the personification of the farm girl meets the various people of the day. The scarecrow was representing the American farmer, the cowardly lion, William Jennings Bryan, and the tin man, the factory worker. All that these groups would have to do was to work together to expose the political and financial systems by learning about each other and their own strengths, to move together to expose the fraud by exposing the wizard behind the curtain. Today, The Wizard of Oz is seen as a children's classic and one of the greatest and most iconic family films of all time. But really, it's about politics. Perhaps, if you're getting conspiratorial, the reason it was made into such a big film, and so remembered, was to make everybody forget it was actually a satire on the monetary and banking fraud taking place at the turn of the century. But to some extent, this campaign did have a small impact. The Gold Standard Act of 1900 was later passed, making gold tied to the US currency. Though it wasn't the bimetallic system many had argued for. Any further reforms to the banking system were saved, however, as luckily new gold deposits were found in South Africa, Alaska and Colorado, doubling the gold supply in the world and easing America's cash crunch. America's new gold standard worked very well. It wasn't perfect, but the fair exchange between the US government and the gold miners for their gold meant that gold could be traded freely between new miners and the government, allowing a new spread of wealth. New discoveries of wealth in what was still one of the frontiers of the world coupled with growing technological output at the start of the Second Industrial Revolution, resulted in widespread prosperity in what we call today the Gilded Age. However, slowly, this system began to unravel. First, with Roosevelt limiting private supplies of gold and then confiscating them, and then Nixon decoupling the dollar to gold completely. Jewish refugees coming from the unfolding horrors in Europe in the 1930s brought their gold with them, but found it to be worthless upon entering the country, as it was seized and basically 
demonetized overnight. In what was essentially government theft of property, millions lost out on what they thought was something more powerful, longer-lasting and more stable than such vague notions as nation-states and governments. During the Second World War, the United States led the way in setting a new monetary order for the world. The United States was the capital reserve of the world, and so created the World Bank and the IMF. The hotel they stayed at was called Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, and as the new monetary order was being hashed out, overlooking the hotel was a mountain peak called Mount Deception, an omen for the new monetary order, if ever there was one. Bretton Woods wasn't too bad, as it kept some relationship between gold and money. The economists at the meeting agreed to keep the value of the US dollar fixed to gold at a price of $35 an ounce. The Bretton Woods system wanted to emphasise stability under government control, and the US government's control at that. The IMF was further set up to facilitate transfers between central banks. The Bretton Woods system was dominated by Keynesian economists who believed in large state-run economies producing jobs for all. The difference between this and socialism, I don't really know. And to be honest, the system worked only slightly better than the socialist economies of the East. John Maynard Keynes himself was in attendance at the conference as the British representative. To some degree, a passing of the torch from Britain to the United States. The US, too, agreed to control the world under GATT, the General Agreement for Tariffs and Trade, where planning of trade and fiscal policy could be centralised. The result of this new monetary world order was the domination of Keynesian economists across the world after the Second World War. For the United States, it was just a continuation of the New Deal. In America, the resultant push for jobs, jobs, jobs meant governments artificially propped up job creation, which directly led to the growing military-industrial complex following the war. And the military-industrial complex's slow increase in power over American politics and the American economy. The military-industrial complex became more concerned about securing new funding revenues through lobbying Congress than providing the supply for what limited demands there were for new wars. This shouldn't surprise us. This is what happens with government money. The easiest way for the military-industrial complex to keep its influence was to keep certain high-profile politicians in power who could keep military spending high. So, through both the funding of political campaigns and the building of manufacturing and service bases in the constituencies of the most high-profile and influential politicians, the military-industrial complex's centrality in American politics was complete. Why do you think Mitch McConnell has kept his position for so long? I'll give you a clue. It's not down to his competence or popularity.
An economy based on sound money would not allow for huge peacetime armies. You would have to raise all the money through taxation and borrowing at market rates, something taxpayers are unlikely to want. Increasingly across the world, government money won out over sound money. Capital, and therefore the economy, became products of political allocation of resources, rather than a free market allocation of capital. If all jobs are seen as good jobs, and the military is popular, it's politically easy to pump money into it. Today, we're largely seeing the same thing with big pharmaceutical companies, which have captured the state almost in the same way as the military-industrial complex. With the United States producing a surplus of military equipment, the result was a demand to use or sell the equipment. Over the course of the 20th century, America became embroiled in a series of wars and proxy wars, of arms deals and shady manoeuvrings, that began to undermine the notion of the country itself. Much of this was down to the overproduction of military resources. Imagine if that government money had been largely spent, and perhaps to some degree wasted, but productively, on, say, the space sector, or building a huge particle accelerator, or other scientific enterprises, and what might have been gained instead. The US government could even have been so bold as to spend their money reflating the soundness of the dollar. By the 1970s, this Keynesian system had caused stagflation. That's massive inflation, but stagnating economic growth. Overspending in Vietnam and the space race, while increasing welfare payments, resulted in a poor allocation of government resources. The ability for the United States to fund the war was drying up, as political capital broke down for the Vietnam War itself, meaning no new taxes could be raised to deal with the problem. Nixon, like generations of politicians before and after, took the very easy option of turning to the money printer. The US government had so overspent, it could no longer redeem its money to gold. The Bretton Woods system that had allowed other central banks to buy an ounce of gold for $35 an ounce was over. Had you managed to buy American gold at this exchange rate before Nixon shut down the gold exchange, your gold would now be worth more than $1,750. The Nixon shock resulted in the creation of much of the foreign exchange market, today worth $5 trillion in value. It was largely an industry created from the product of market inefficiencies. Just remember back to Jesus from the first episode, in the temple, overthrowing the money changers. The Nixon shock was hashed out by Secretary of the Treasury John Connolly, who, interestingly, was in the car with JFK in Dallas in 1963, along with Nixon and they planned to start a new monetary order, and started by issuing a price freeze on wages and a 10% tariff on imports. Quickly, the rest of the world was thrown off course, 
as America unilaterally shook up the monetary order. Around the world, currencies started to free float against each other, and standards of living suddenly changed. Especially in Latin America, where a series of coups through the 1970s was the result of the new monetary order drastically making more poverty than before. Britain in the 1970s didn't do much better than Latin America, as the 1970s in Britain saw many economic issues resulting in a more fair revaluation of sterling. This new fiat currency and new economic world order caused all currencies to become derivatives of the US dollar, rather than having value in their own right. This gave the dollar huge power over the world. The commercialization of the world, however, soon followed this move, with American companies far more easily able to supply foreign exchange reserves to developing countries. The decoupling of real value to the printed notes for the rest of the 20th century has caused inflation to steadily increase for year upon year, as banks and governments no longer had to back up money printing with gold reserves. This inflationary society we are all still living in caused a culture of consumerism and consumption, rather than a society of saving and investment. Consumer prices were largely kept in check, however, by the increasing globalisation, allowing cheaper labour and products to flood the market. However, fixed costs rose precipitously. Real estate, property, college and hospital fees in the United States, rail fares in Britain, and share valuations all soared. Soon, this inflationary economy was so resolute that even in the face of rising living standards in the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s, inflation was still seen as a permanent tax on cash. This hurt the poor most, as most economic decisions taken by the government tend to do. As they had the least access to fixed assets and relied more on cash. This situation was not helped by the rapid increase in immigration, resulting in a sudden burst of new labour entering the economy. Inflation of fixed assets at the same time as immigration caused labour's value not to inflate, but deflate, caused another rise of populism all across the world. It wasn't all bad news. Consumer goods, driven by short-term innovation, and the short-term demands of an inflationary economy took hold and drove the consumerism of the 1980s, which did result in much prosperity across the Western world. The Thatcher and Reagan revolutions of the 1980s were products of their time, and a reaction to the dreadful economic prospects of the 1970s. The realisation that large parts of the economy were broken from over-regulation and over-management meant a huge change was needed. Overnight, Thatcher, in Britain especially, cut off uneconomic parts of the economy, cutting the industrial capacity of the North and Scotland, especially Glasgow, and moving towards a more pure free market.
However, the devastation of industry and manufacturing meant that many held Thatcher personally responsible for their economic problems. Despite the success of many of her reforms, in the short term at least, it led to her determined assumption that manufacturing was unprofitable in the modern economy, which belied any real idea of what destroying an industrial economy and moving it to a service economy would do to large parts of the economy. With a digital revolution already underway by the 1980s, it meant any chances of industries reorienting themselves and retraining to this new manufacturing revolution was practically nil. Asia was the digital workhouse of the world, with most electronics made and manufactured in the Far East. However, unlike previous industrial revolutions, these manufacturing bases did not pave the way for Asian supremacy. In many ways, the West was still the best. How? Well, the West was still the best at financial innovations. In this new globalised economy, manufacturing could be done in Asia, services in Europe and America, and the grunt work of farming and mineral extraction could be done in the poorest parts of the world. The Western grip on money and finances, backed up by their militaries, meant there was no real way for Japan or South Korea ever to become a true global power. Financial innovations continued to pour out of the United States in particular, to cement its place as still the capital reserve of the world. By the 1950s in the United States, the car was already common in much of America, and was increasingly taking people to places far enough away that they didn't know anybody nearby. Cars might break down in the middle of a road and have to limp to the next garage. The repairs and costs might be too high for the amount of cash the driver had on them. And so, to solve this problem, we turn to an unlikely source of financial innovation, big oil. Oil companies began to produce their own credit cards for the use of purchasing from a merchant in mostly gas stations. The first real credit card introduced ever was in 1950 in the Diners Club, a posh restaurant chain, using the first modern charge card, which could be used at its 27 fine dining restaurants, which were largely used by affluent businessmen. In 1958, American Express Company, which was already known for being a traveller's check company, issued its first plastic charge card. Then came Bank of America in 1958. And with California being its largest populated market, the card could be quickly rolled out in this new and young economy. In 1977, Bank America, the Bank of America, plastic card, would be renamed to Visa. The credit card came at a time when credit was becoming cheaper and cheaper due to increasing amounts of government money. You could buy something in store with a credit card and pay for it later, sometimes much later. Today, you can even get credit cards 
with 24 months interest-free borrowing. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, this easy credit was revolutionary. Spending became freer and freer, and seemed to benefit all. Governments received sales taxes from the spending, the merchants gained a sale, and the buyer they got a product they would just have to pay for later. Perhaps now over a period of a few months rather than all at once. Whilst the banks could also charge very high interest for any payments not met. It was seen as win-win for pretty much everybody. Except maybe the poorest who couldn't pay it back. Money doesn't grow on trees, or so we're told. Despite fiat money being paper money, and paper of course coming from trees. The true phrase we should use is that capital doesn't grow on trees. Capital is the result of human work and human effort. The expansion of individual consumer debt went up and up as the relation between capital and money began to diverge. This individual consumer debt reached the staggering amount of $1 trillion by the mid-1990s. It started to be seen as a problem. Much of this debt was going out of the United States to Japan to buy cars, or Germany to buy electronic goods, which caused something of a balance of payment crisis, all based on the swirling amounts of consumer debt. Money can be magic into thin air, but capital can't. Increasingly large debt levels caused a further influx of money into economies and continued the rise of inflation. Credit was seen as fashionable, and you were seen as a high flyer to flash around plastic. Just as gold was shiny and new, so was silver. America's new monetary revolution was based on shiny plastic. To show you're rich, just flash around that card you've got, and you can buy whatever you want. Branding became important to show just how rich you were. Everything from gold Amex cards to unique plastic cards tried to encourage all to get on the plastic bandwagon. Rather than flashing cash, or even gold in generations before, a shiny new bank card was much more in tune with this new digital age. In 1972, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco first experimented with electronic payments by bypassing paper between its main office and its LA branch. By 1978, this was in effect all over the United States. The process expanded in 1980 as Congress enlarged digital money to other financial institutions connected to the Fed. In 1975, the government offered recipients direct money transfers rather than having to go to a building to get given cash. This was also soon spread throughout the workforce. Digital money, however, wasn't quite as easy as it is now. Without the internet to send this information, this digital money relied on sending magnetic tapes via courier. By the 1990s, the internet revolution had cut out the middleman and made money more digital. The use of electronic money grew around the world, and just like before, 
America sought to regulate this new money in its own image. Starting in 1977, with the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, or SWIFT. The system was based in Brussels, but run by the United States, and it helped coordinate money across the world via American regulations. If the US doesn't like you, it can cut you off from SWIFT. Just ask Iran, North Korea or Russia. Soon after the invention of the credit card, magnetic strips were used to enable people to get cash from ATMs. However oddly, another digital invention was also at the same time causing a rise in the use of coins. Video arcades and vending machines led to a surge in the use of small coinage. Some say the release of Space Invaders or the release of Pac-Man in Japan caused a coin shortage. And I even repeated this story on my other podcast in the episode on gaming. I'm not sure anymore how true this is, but it shows just how far behind certain parts of the economy were when it came to money. Kids were still perfectly happy to play with coins. The rapid rise of the internet only encouraged this new digital money in the economy, as digital money began to be used more and more in the realm of e-commerce. However, despite these economic changes, then, as today, the swift payment mechanism still abounds as the dominant mode of inter-country payments, despite it being old 1970s technology. Swift is slow and lumbersome, and it took days to process transactions, as payments must go through multiple banks before reaching their final destination. SWIFT has introduced its own improved service in recent years, called Global Payments Innovation, GPI, stating that as of 2018, it had been adopted by 165 banks and was completing half of its payments in under 30 minutes. This new digital currency, processed by SWIFT and backed by America, has seen money transfers go ever more global, creating a level of trust in digital money and due to the freedom of the foreign exchange market. That, when it works, does look like a decent approximation of a strong monetary order. But things like that will always change. The illusion of safety and security isn't actually safety and security. The ascent of money, as financial historian Neil Ferguson called it, has been pretty much complete with this digitization of money. Now, today, there is no excuse not to carry money. Money is on your phone, in your wallet, and even on your smartwatch. There is some worry today that in financial technology, China is taking the lead with a more advanced and quicker payment system, and without it having to go through SWIFT. China's version is far more modern, and arguably a threat to Western monetary order. The rise in digital dollars has also resulted in some unintended consequences. It's now a lot easier to digitally issue money than to print paper notes. All you have to do is add a few zeros onto a spreadsheet 
and you can pour money into the economy like there's no tomorrow. Fair to say you simply flooded the system with money. Yes, we did. That's another way to think about it. We did. Where does it come from? Do you just print it? We print it digitally. So we, you know, we, as a central bank, we have the ability to create money uh, digitally. And we do that by buying treasury bills or, or bonds or other government-guaranteed securities. And that, that actually increases the money supply. We also print actual currency, and we distribute that through the Federal Reserve Banks. The expansion of this digital money into society started with the online banking movement of the 1990s. With the internet-only bank, NetBank, founded in 1996. By 2001, Bank of America Online had banking for 3 million people. By 2006, 80% of American banks offered online banking. Banking was now 24-7 and automated much of the work previously done through call centres and in branches, making retail banking cheaper for the masses and even allowing developing countries to get access to banking through the coming smartphone adoption of the 2010s. So the future is digital, however we may look at it. Cash will still hopefully be around in future, but more and more money will be digital only. Bitcoin was introduced at a time when the two main payment systems were cash or digital dollars, with the digital version needing an intermediary like a bank. The need for this intermediary is due to the double spend problem of digital money. You need to be sure that digital payments can't be duplicated. This is done by using a quote-unquote trusted intermediary like a bank, who can be assured not to mess around by duplicating or adding fake money into accounts. Cryptocurrencies, many believe, including me, aim to solve the problem of this new digital dollars by being able to remove middlemen and to make internet money less able to be manipulated by these quote-unquote trusted intermediaries. So what does it mean to be a cryptocurrency? Well, work it out from the title. There is a strong element of cryptography to these new coins to secure them against all manner of threats. While in theory, they should also be able to work as normal currencies. The idea of pure digital money has been around for years now, and something like it was already circulating in science fiction, with the obvious need to have some ability to transact money across the galaxy. If you remember Star Wars The Phantom Menace, when Qui-Gon Jinn tries to buy the parts for his ship with Republic credits, Watto wants quote-unquote only money. The great republic that spans a galaxy isn't seen to have real money on the outer rim of the galaxy. Republic credits are just that, credits, not money. For Watto, it was seen as worthless. I don't know exactly what Watto wanted in return for his spare hyperdrive, but I'm guessing a form of metallic money would have been what he wanted. Had the Republic been stronger though, 
it could have imposed its credits on outer rim territories. Though it does surprise me, Qui-Gon Jinn didn't think that all he had to do was find a currency trader somewhere on Tatooine. Instead, he thought the best way to get what he wanted was by betting his ship on the life of an eight-year-old boy to win a race. In the 21st century, people can't seem to be trusted not to artificially duplicate digital deposits. And so, everything needs to be transacted through safe institutions like banks. Yet, Bitcoin offers a solution to the double-spend problem through its blockchain technology, which we'll talk about in a later chapter. Bitcoin allows peer-to-peer digital payments without the need for any middlemen. Technology is nothing if not the taking out of the middleman. Bitcoin, through the blockchain checking everything, allows for true digital scarcity without the need for an intermediary. With the dollar still the reserve currency and so easy to print and inflate, especially since the end of the gold standard, what the world has been looking for since 1971 is a scarce resource that is easy to transact, holds purchasing power and cannot be corrupted. Bitcoin by enabling true peer-to-peer interactions, makes money, and therefore people, not governments, sovereign. Cryptocurrencies only exist digitally. But with developments in science, I don't see any reason why you couldn't have small amounts of cryptos put into real coins or notes, either as a store of value, or to be even easier to transact. The entire ecosystem of cryptocurrencies looks to me as the next monetary step forward. Nothing in the crypto space needs backing by governments, nor can governments do much about it. Money can and has always been created out of nothing and slowly gotten acceptance as a medium of exchange and store of value. Cryptos will be the same. So, thanks for listening to that episode. If you liked it, feel free to give a star rating or leave a comment. Or perhaps you want to explore my other podcast. It's called 100 Greatest Inventions. In the next episode, we're going to start looking at economic specialisation, political systems and the Great Reset. (laughs) 